So now, Lord God, we pray that you would help us to preach. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you've been around a while, thanks, Kim, you know that uh, for the month of, of March, we've been preaching through John chapter five and we're preaching through the gospel of, of John. John chapter five begins with this sentence. After this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. I once counted there's something like 80 days of commanded feasting in the Old Testament. That's, that's, a lot of, that's a lot of party. In Leviticus 23, God speaks to Moses listing all of the appointed feasts. And the very first feast that God lists is the Sabbath, which you'll remember is the seventh day. It represents the fact that God created the world in six days and on the seventh day it is finished. And everything, everything, everything is very good. As we saw when we preached through the book of Genesis, we're living in the sixth day, being made in God's image and not finished until we pass through judgment, which is the cross on which the very word of God, through whom all things are made, lifts his head and cries, it is finished, and gives up his spirit. That's the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verse 30. In John's revelation, there is an amazing scene in chapters four and five. John sees every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is within them, praising the one on the throne, the lamb that was slain, the lamb, the slaughtered lamb, who opens the seven-sealed scroll, releasing seven trumpets, seven thunders, and seven bowls. You see, it's that lamb that gives meaning, plot, to all space and time, all creation. He is the plot. He's the door. He's the way to God's promised rest, that eternal, unending party. And so to go up to Jerusalem for a festival was to anticipate that, that, that day, that party, that day when we were all finally suited with leisure. Well, when Jesus uh, gets to the party in Jerusalem, there's this one guy who couldn't get into the pool, the pool of Bethesda, which means house of mercy. And Jesus asks him, do you want to be well? It appears that he doesn't and probably can't. And so Jesus wills it and wants it for him, saying, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And then John writes, now that day was the Sabbath. You see, for that man, it really was the Sabbath. Jesus gave him Sabbath. Yet Jesus says he and his father have been working and are working still. So it's not the Sabbath for everyone here, at least not quite yet. Well, the Jews hate Jesus for breaking their laws about the Sabbath, yet Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the door to God's eternal Sabbath. So you see, the Jews, they don't want to enter the Sabbath, the promised land, the house of mercy. They are spiritual invalids 
who don't want to be well. The Jews don't want Jesus, the Jews. Now, now we probably ought to stop for a minute and uh, understand what John means by that, that term, the Jews. Because genetically, culturally, John is a Jew himself, right? Jesus is a Jew. The 12 are all Jews. Yet John doesn't refer to them, it seems, anymore as the Jews. Well, the Jews, you see, are, are literally his tribe. John's tribe, Jesus' tribe, the Jews. The house of Judah, that's, that's where the term Jew comes from. Uh, their tribe. Humans naturally form tribes. Any anthropologist or anyone who's been to junior high will tell you that. People form tribes. The sociologist Emil Durkheim studied aboriginal tribes and pointed out that men create tribes and tribes create totems. The totem embodies the valued characteristic of the tribe. And so men create tribes and tribes create totems and then men start worshiping the totems. And in this way, they worship themselves, trying to create themselves, finish themselves, glorify themselves with themselves. God created man and man returned the favor, wrote Blaise Pascal. We see if the Jews had a totem, it wasn't a totem that they simply created. It, it was something that they corrupted. It was the knowledge of good and evil, the law, God's law that they took and made their own law. It was like a tree that they had corrupted and turned into their own totem, like their own totem pole, their judgments. Well, anyway, like I was saying, the Jews were Jesus' tribe. And in a tribe, everyone talks the same way, dresses the same way, and that's called fashion. Every tribe creates a uniform of fashion. Jesus said they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long in order to be seen by men. That's fashion. In a tribe, you talk the same, dress the same, and you have the same enemy. Sociologists call that scapegoating. In a tribe, you talk the same way, dress the same way, hate the same way, and think the same way, and you genuinely believe that that way is the way. The way. Self-evident, foundational, objective truth. And yet, it's just fashion. Well, the Jews were Jesus' tribe. And Jesus wasn't conforming to the fashion of the tribe. The way was not conforming to their way. So verse 18, they seek all the more to kill him. See, they didn't want to be well. And they didn't want others to be well especially their scapegoats, Samaritans, Romans, invalids. They didn't want to believe. They didn't want to believe. Why? Why? 
Well, the rest of chapter 5 is Jesus' response to their accusations. We read 19 through 29 last week about judgment, and now verse 30, Jesus says this, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just or righteous. Because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He seeks the will, he seeks the judgment of him who sent him, not the will or the judgment of his tribe. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. That's Deuteronomy 17. Everything must be established by two or three witnesses. There is another who bears, literally who is bearing, like right now, there's another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. That, that's his father, I think. And yet, nevertheless, Jesus now lists three witnesses. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I received is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. John was a lamp, and Jesus is the light. They enjoyed the lamp for a while, and then they hated the light. John was a preacher and a prophet. It's fascinating to me, but, but many, many people really like preaching, especially if it's the law. And especially if it's Mishnah, commentary on the law. People like the law and yet dislike the one who fulfills the law. Maybe they want to fulfill the law. And people really like prophecy, and check this out. Greatest prophecy in the Gospel of John and perhaps all of the Scripture is the following. One man should die for the people. The, the nation, the ethnos, the tribe. One man should die for the people. Do, do you remember who prophesied that? Do you? Caiaphas, the high priest who had Jesus crucified. You see, we can love prophecy and hate the one that it's about. Popular books, popular bookstores, they're, they're full of books on prophecy, particularly John's prophecy, the Revelation. And, and this is what they usually claim. They claim it's about the U.S. and Russia and China and 10-nation European confederacies and how to stockpile food and bear arms so that in case you're left behind, you can shoot the last and the least. We'll try to take your food during the Great Tribulation. And yet John says it's the revelation of Jesus, not survival tactics for the Tribulation. Revelation of Jesus, who makes himself last and least. And so you better not shoot him sitting on a stockpile of food during the tribulation. Spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus, wrote John. Revelation 19.10. So John the Baptist was all about Jesus. Verse 36, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So number one, the prophets bear witness. Number two, the works, miraculous signs bear witness. We preached on this a few weeks ago, but you can see signs and not read them. You can see a sign and utterly miss the one it points to. In fact, if you seek signs, you'll even end up hating the one that it 
that it points to. He is revealed when there is no sign. And that's the sign. Jesus Christ and him crucified. A slaughtered lamb. Verse 37. And the father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. His form you have never seen. Yet he's standing right there in front of him. Right? The word of God in flesh. The perfect image of the invisible God. I mean, they must be blind or deaf. Logically, logically, they should believe. They have the three witnesses, prophecy, miracles, and scripture, but they don't want what any of those things mean. The logos, the logic, the word. His voice you have never heard, heard and yet haven't heard. His form you have never seen, seen and yet haven't seen. And you do not have his word, logos, abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Jesus is the word, the logos, the meaning, the reason, the plot. means the plot. They, they read the story and can't see the plot. And since they can't see the plot, they can't really read the story. I mean, they see facts in the story, but they don't know what any of the facts mean. They can't discern the plot, and, and so they hate the plot, and so they take the plot and they nail him to their tree, their totem pole, their fashion. You see, they want to control the plot, and so they kill the plot. They crucify the plot so they can take the facts and give them new meaning, their meaning, <laughs> that he's not the way. We are the way. They crucify the plot, and yet the plot rises from the grave, such that even their sin and even our sin is written into his story, utterly transformed by the plot. No one is stronger than the author and his plot. The word of God is the plot. The plot is Jesus Christ and him crucified mercy. Verse 45, Jesus says, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words, Moses? You know, Moses prophesied of Christ. Moses recorded great miracles that were Christ, pillar of fire, pillar of smoke, miraculous rock that bleeds living water. And Moses wrote scripture, the five books of the law. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. The moral law describes Christ's character, love. The ceremonial law describes what he does, sacrifice. The sacrifice of love, that's the plot. They memorized the story and hated 
the plot. You know, the Bible has been used to justify just about every manner of evil imaginable. In the Middle of Ages, in the Middle Ages, they, they used it to justify the torture of Muslims. In Germany, they used it to justify the genocide of Jews. In the U.S., we used it for the enslavement of an entire race that one tribe would own another tribe. You know, the Bible speaks of slavery, for it teaches that we must be a slave of love. We must choose to serve all. For Jesus, the king of all, chose to be servant of all. That's the plot. And he's not just the plot to Scripture. He's the plot to all things. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, writes Paul. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace, Sabbath. By the blood of his cross. So John 5 verse 40. Jesus says to his tribe. You refuse. Literally you will not. You want not. To come to me. That you may have life. Why? Why? seems so illogical. Why? Jesus says, verse 41, I think this is it. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. You receive those that seek glory from, from people. You know, if someone seeks glory from you, what? You, you, can, you can control them. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe? This must be why they don't believe. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Why do they not want to be well? Why can't they believe? The answer? They receive glory from one another. They, they, they like give and receive awards. And grades. And accolades. Judgments. And so they are slaves to their tribe, slaves to fashion. Now, I don't know whether or not you know this, but I'm wearing a leisure suit. <laughs> I remember getting my very first leisure suit around about 1973. I was in junior high. And it was awesome. <laughs> in fact, I thought it was the ultimate breakthrough in fashion technology. A revelation of design that would render all previous designs inferior. Forever and ever and ever. Amen. My tan leisure suit was made of this great new lightweight fabric called double knit polyester. No need for a restrictive tie. I had this, you remember this shirt, Mom? I had this cool red and orange feely shirt that I wore unbuttoned halfway down so that everyone could see my puka shells. And I longed for the day when I would grow a big old rug, a chest hair, and a big old mustache because 
chick big guys with body hair. I'm the pastor, I rebuke that statement. They dig guys with body hair. 1973, if someone would have said to me, leisure suits are stupid, I would have looked at them like they were from some other planet, you know, because it was obvious, it was foundational, self-evident truth. Everybody knew leisure suits are cool. With the invention of the leisure suit, clothing designers had reached the state of perfection. With the invention of the leisure suit, it is finished. Sabbath, now we can rest. Now we can have leisure. Now we can party. In my leisure suit, I was glorified. See, no fashion images from the garden. The very first fashion images aren't in a garden, it's in the garden. It was a fall one. A, a, a dragon tempted, God, a dragon tempted uh, the woman and the man to make themselves in God's image with fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so they took law and tried to justify and glorify themselves. And then they took fig leaves and fashioned them into clothing to cover their shame and bring themselves glory. But at that initial fall off, they didn't cover their shame. You know, Vogue magazine and Heidi Klum every year, they work away on TV. No fashion. That was just for show. They were still fashion and they were still fashionable and they were still edible and they sold for every fraction of every dollar they made.
can't watch a murder. It can only appear like a murder. And then that one says, hey, everyone is dead leaders. These were glorious in 1973. And everyone said they were horrid in 1979. Because they can't see their own your faith is like a theological research experiment. Oh, that sounds like a bunch of fun. It's so elaborate. This is what every, everyone knows. The earth is flat. And when challenged, they would use scripture to prove their point. It was only a few years ago that, that, that many, very many thought, it's totally obvious, everyone knows that people with white skin should own people with dark skin. When challenged, they'd use fragments of Scripture to prove their point, and thereby they would crucify the plot that first became last, that the king chose to become the servant of all. But at this point, right now, fashion. Fashion is public opinion and peer pressure. Fashion is the institutions of this world. It's not dangerous and even rather fun when it's confined to clothes and everyone remembers it's a joke and yet it's absolutely terrifying in the hands of the dragon and his beasts. It's the energy of the mind. Chant the totem of the angry gods. Sometimes I think we even call it democracy. It's the popular way. And as far as I can tell in all of scripture, at least all the New Testament, there's only one democratic vote taken um, in the entire uh, New Testament, a Roman governor presided over the vote and appears to have been fairly unanimous. Caiaphas and all the others chanted. They all chanted together in unison, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. That was their vote. It was the voice of the ancient dragon. And yet if you were there, and maybe in some strange way you are there, if you were there, it would have probably seemed fashionable. And it would have certainly seemed orthodox. What's orthodox? People say, well, well Pastor, is, 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 that, is that orthodox? And I ask, orthodox to whom? Your friends? Your parents? Your denomination? And, and do you mean in the 20th century, the 19th century, the 15th century? Do you mean the Orthodox Church, or perhaps the Roman Catholic Church, or one of the several thousand Protestant churches? And what makes you think that orthodox is true? You know, orthodox is a tremendous blessing if it's the opinion of those who have studied and practiced the most. That's one thing. But usually in our democratic society, uh, orthodox means theological fashion. 
the totem of our particular tribe. And my friends, truth always gets crucified on totem poles. Orthodoxy. In Jesus' day, orthodox meant Caiaphas and, and the Jews, and no one has ever been as unorthodox as Jesus. In this world, no one is ever as unfashionable as Jesus. And so in this world, it is always fashionable to crucify the Messiah. For there is no logos in fashion. Fashion creates its own meaning. And the logos is the meaning. So Jesus said, how can you believe? When you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. Glory, glory from one another and glory from God. Is it the, is it the same glory? You know, when we seek glory from one another, everyone in our tribe begins to look the same. We create uniforms, uniformity. We all wear leisure suits. And, and, then, and then, before long, we each get restless in our leisure suits. And I think that's why fashion changes. We keep trying things on because the glory fades and it just doesn't fit. By 1978, leisure suits just, just didn't cut it. The glory had gone out of leisure suits. So in 1979, I got my very first three-piece pinstripe wool suit, and I began looking down on people that wore leisure suits. The old tribe. When we seek the glory that comes from one another, we create uniform prisons of fear. Insecurity and fear. We create tribes. And then we go to war with other tribes because, you see, there's just not that much glory to go around. That's the glory we seek and receive from one another. It creates restless prisons of fear. That is, we clothe ourselves in fig leaves and hide in the trees. Slaves of fashion. That, my friends, is the fall line. But there is a glory that comes from God. It's the spring line. The Easter line. Eternal line. Always in fashion. And it's a glory... It's a different glory, and, and let me explain it like this. Close your eyes for a minute. And I just want you to think for a minute how it feels when you receive glory from people. So remember, think about how does it feel, how did it feel to get an A? Perhaps you received a compliment. How does that feel? Perhaps you earned a degree, a promotion. How does that feel? But now I want you to remember the very first time you saw a shooting star. How'd that feel? The very first time you saw the sunset over the ocean, rise over the Grand Canyon, how'd that feel? How does it feel when you hear a, a great song or, 
What amazing story. How's it feel? See, in the first instance, you dress yourself with glory. You dress yourself with glory, awarded by men. In the second, you're, 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 you're lost in glory. A beauty, a harmony, a plot, a glory that you cannot possess, but that for a moment possesses you. In the first, you dress yourself. In the second, you are dressed in glory, with glory. So what is God's glory? Well, after the fall line came out, and you can open your eyes now. After the fall line came out, God, God found Adam and Eve hiding in the trees. And do you remember what he did? He slaughtered an animal, a sacrifice. Like a lamb. I think, I think it was probably a lamb. And then he clothed them. He dressed them in the skin of that lamb. Jesus said, if God so clothes the grass of the field with glory, will he not much more clothe you? John 12, Jesus, the lamb of God, says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be Glorified. It's Palm Sunday. He's talking of his death. He goes on to talk about death. It's time for the Son of Man to be glorified. You see, Jesus Christ and him crucified is the judgment of God. We talked about that last week. And Jesus Christ and him crucified is also the glory of God. God is mercy, brighter than the sun, deeper than the ocean, sweeter than the sweetest song. The hour has come to be glorified. And then in John 12, before the crowd, on Palm Sunday, before his tribe, the crowd, Jesus cries out, Father, glorify your name. And a voice booms from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Your name, his name is Yahweh. I am Jesus. It means God saves. I am the God who saves. Glorify your name. The voice booms. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And then John writes, the crowd heard it, but they said it thundered. They heard, and they didn't hear. For the crowd doesn't seek glory from God. They seek fashion. And so they cannot hear the thunder of God's mercy himself. They want to clothe themselves, and so do not want to be clothed with mercy. Through Isaiah, God says, I am the Lord. This is my name. My glory I give to no other. And then he says, my glory will be seen upon you. In the Revelation, chapter 21, John sees, quote, the bride, the wife of the lamb. She's a city and she is us. And she has, quote, the glory of God. Jesus Christ and him crucified is the glory of God. And we are being clothed with him. We cannot dress ourselves with glory, but God dresses us with the glory that is himself. And when we are finally dressed, it is the seventh day. The marriage supper of the Lamb. The party that never ends the Sabbath. Our eternal rest. Now, I can't believe that I'm going to say this, but nonetheless, it's true. You see, Jesus Christ is the ultimate Leisure suit. 
that never, ever, ever goes out of style. We cannot truly rest until we rest in him, clothed in him, like a bride clothed in the arms of her groom, the glory of God. And unlike the glory we receive from people, God's glory is unlimited, eternal, unfading, it's specifically, specially suited just for you, fit for you, he died for you, the individual you, he makes you you. You know, the worst party is a bunch of uniform prisons of fear, unified by fear. Everybody in leisure suits, stressed out. Man's leisure suits, but the best party is Unique, unique individuals unified by love, one love. So Jesus makes you an individual and then he sets you free to party forever. The Sabbath, the festival. But in John 5, Jesus asks this. How can you believe? How can you live? How can you party when you receive glory from one another? And do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. When you want the glory of men, which is credit, how can you want the glory of God, which is grace? If you clothe yourself in fashion, how can you be dressed with faith? And so if we don't come to God undressed of fashion, God in his infinite mercy does what? He finds a way to make us unfashionable. He finds a way to strip us of the glory of men. He finds a way to get us kicked out of our tribe. Like he got kicked out of his tribe. John 16, 2, he says to his disciples, you will be kicked out of the synagogues. Last week, someone Someone asked me this question, why didn't Jesus heal the, the other guys at the pool? It's a great question. And actually, um, I, I think the reality is he didn't heal them yet. Just like he didn't heal these Jews yet. You see, perhaps they were still being stripped of fashion in order to be clothed with faith. Perhaps they needed more time in, in the wilderness. You know, the invalid had been there at, at the side of the pool under the law for 38 years, the amount of time the Jews wandered in the wilderness. Perhaps these Jews needed to wander in the wilderness. Perhaps that old Jerusalem needed to be destroyed. Perhaps they even needed to weep and gnash their teeth in the outer darkness for a time. Perhaps they needed to be stripped of all so that God would be allowed to clothe them. You see, God in his mercy makes you unfashionable so that unable to dress yourself with the glory of men, he would be allowed to dress you with himself. He strips you of fashion and dresses you with faith. For there is no such thing as fashionable faith. No one truly believes because it's the fashion. 
no one truly believes because it's orthodox. They only believe because they've been to the cross. Nothing is less fashionable than the cross. And it's there you see him, the glory of God. He's stripped of the glory of men, revealing the glory of God. You meet him there, where he's stripped of fashion, and you are stripped of fashion. Nothing is less fashionable than the cross. And do you see what that means? It means he does not love you because you're in fashion. He loves you because of who he is. And he is the glory of God. Unlimited, unbounded, unstoppable love. And when you see him as, as he truly is, you, you are clothed in glory, God's glory, and then you can rest. You can party. It's the Sabbath. Your home. And so that night, the beginning of that day, he took the bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, saying, this is the new covenant, eternal covenant, in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, and do it in remembrance of me. And so do you see him? Do you see glory? Do you see the glory? Pray this with me. If you want him, Father, I confess my pride. Just pray that silently in your heart. And I seek your mercy, which is you. And you are glorious. Paul wrote this slight momentary affliction. You see, this momentary affliction which strips us of glory, this slight momentary affliction prepares us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all compare. So come to the table, tear off a piece of bread, dip it in the cup. The dark cups are wine, the light cups are juice. Come stripped to the fashion of men and allow your Father in heaven to dress you. In other words, worship in Jesus' name, amen. And uh, so why should you believe this stuff?
Because I told you? Because you sat in a room full of people that believe this stuff? Because the government told you? Because a committee told you? Because the Pope told you? Because I'm wearing a leisure suit. <laughs> Should it be because I'm wearing a leisure suit? Nah. You know, Jesus said an amazing thing that I think really infuriates the principalities and powers. He said this, seek and you will find, period. That's crazy. Seek and you will find. Seek the glory of men, well, you'll probably find it. But I don't think it'll fit and it will fade. Seek the glory of God, seek truth, and you'll find it, said Jesus. And that doesn't make sense to us because we go, well, I, I, I mean, I, and this is good. I mean, read books, go to churches, listen to committees, do all of that, but seek the truth and you will find it. That, that, that doesn't make sense unless the truth is a dude, a guy. I mean, so you could, you could like seek him for 38 years, lying by the side of a pool, and suddenly, someday, he'll show up. He'll find you. Seek and you will find the truth. Jesus is the truth and the glory of God. And he's the one you were made for. Believe the gospel in Jesus' name. Amen.